0: I Riot police are coming. We're being told to disperse. Some of the alt right are being pushed out. It's about a half an hour before the speakers are supposed to start. The alt right are marching to McIntyre Park. It's the alternate park that they were being pushed to earlier this week. We're, we're here obeying the law. We're doing everything that we're supposed to do, trying to, to express opinions. And the criminals are over there getting their way. In August 2017, hundreds of white nationalists gathered in Charlottesville, Virginia, for the Unite the Right rally, which resulted in mass violence and the murder of counter-protester Heather Heyer. And that is because this city is run by Jewish communists and criminal (laughs) That's exactly what it is. We're not nonviolent. We'll fucking kill these people if we have to. Vice News was there when these tragic events unfolded, and now, four years later, Tess Owen, senior reporter for our extremism desk, went to Charlottesville this month to be in the courtroom as proceedings in a unique effort to put the white supremacist movement on trial unfolds. We talked to Tess about the difficulties of a trial like this and how the far-right movement has changed since the infamous rally. The violence that shocked the nation four years ago in Charlottesville, Virginia, is now at the center of a closely watched civil trial. At issue, whether the organizers of the deadly 2017 Unite the Right March are accountable for what the plaintiff's charge was an unlawful conspiracy. The suit already has helped to dismantle some of America's most well-known white supremacist groups,
1: and it has financially
0: crippled one leader of the so-called alt-right.
1: They're accused of coming to Charlottesville with the goal of inciting racially motivated violence and instilling fear in the community. The defendants have argued that their actions were protected under the First Amendment. The story people think they know about Charlottesville is so much deeper and darker than you
0: can imagine. This is Vice News Reports, and I'm your host Ariel Jim Ross. So, Tess, how are you doing? Uh, good. How are you doing? I'm. I'm okay. I'm all right. Uh, you have been covering this trial you've been taking a like spending a lot of time looking at this stuff so how has it been going so far
1: um you know quite surreal to see these guys who have been you know I like these villains who are so heavily involved in the events of Unite the Right back in Charlottesville all together for the first time um and this time you know they're coming into the courthouse to stand trial and um in theory be held accountable for the events of that weekend in August 2017 And so it's sort of interesting to revisit these characters um, who were once so prominent in this world. Right. Forgive me for
0: this, but I was under the impression that some of the participants in the Unite the Right rally had
1: already been prosecuted. Is that not the case? No, you're absolutely right. Um, One man, James Fields Jr., a 20-year-old neo-Nazi, was found guilty for murdering Heather Heyer and also other federal hate crime charges, he drove into a crowd of counter protesters during Unite the Right, and he is also one of the twenty-four defendants in this case. Four others were sentenced to eight years in prison for beating a black man, DeAndre Harris, during the rally. So there have been people who have, you know, been been held accountable with, you know, criminally since then. Okay, okay, but this is different, right? Because this is a
0: federal civil trial.
1: Yes, this is a federal civil trial, and it was brought by a nonprofit called um, Integrity First for America on behalf of nine uh, Charlottesville residents who were physically injured or um, have endured sort of long-lasting trauma as a result of what happened. And so, this is sort of the, the the biggest effort to hold the organizers of that event accountable or, or liable, basically, for what happened. and They are accused of conspiring to incite racially motivated violence in Charlottesville. It's supposed to send a clear warning to white supremacists um, across the U.S. and also bankrupt the organizations and individuals who are accused of coming together to plan the events of Unite the Right. Oh, I see. So tell me more about this trial. Who exactly is on trial? So there are 24 defendants in all, which are an array of white nationalists, neo-Nazis and their organizations. Some pretty well-known figures are among them, including Richard Spencer, who is sort of a suit and tie white nationalist. Chris Cantwell, who is like a neo-Nazi shock jock. You've got Jason Kessler, who's a white nationalist um, resident of Charlottesville. You've got a group called Identity Europa, which has since been disbanded. You've got the Daily Stormer, which is like a neo-Nazi media hub. Okay. And you've been in the courtroom. Can you give me a sense of what's been unfolding? Yeah. So two of the defendants are representing themselves, but that's also led to some courtroom chaos and frankly, some fairly absurd moments. Um, Hmm. What kind of chaos? Well, Chris Cantwell's dropped the N-word several times. He's quizzed his co-defendants on things like what their favorite Holocaust joke is. Um, The judge told him he was, you know, Cantwell was replaying a video from Charlottesville and he got told off by the judge because he was dancing to the protest chants. Um, Are you serious? Like, are they taking this seriously at all? Well, I think that, I mean, for Chris Cantwell, for example, you know, he said that he considered this to be a spoken word performance um, and that he saw Mm -hmm. it as a tremendous opportunity because of the cause at hand and because he, quote, knew the world was listening it definitely seems as though he is using this opportunity to sort of boost his ideas and um, kind of treating it like a sort of neo-Nazi podcast, essentially. Wow. Um, okay. There's another an, another sort of slightly bizarre thing um, which is worth kind of noting is that. Richard Spencer, who again is this sort of suit and tie white nationalist, kind of fancies himself to be an intellectual, um, uh, was probably the most influential figure in the so-called alt-right back in 2017. He has been showing up to court with um a blue stuffed dinosaur in a in a bag, which has been sort mm, of I heard about this. Yeah, it's been um a bit of a mystery. I think that, that the the idea is that he's trying to sort of remind the jury that he has children.
0: You know, it's interesting in, in hearing you talk about this. There is this tension where these defendants
1: are arguing that what they did at this rally was free speech. This has been one of the interesting things that's come up again and again in this trial. Um, Chris Campbell, in particular, has asked expert witnesses, historians, um, who have been you know testifying in the trial, if there's if there's such thing as just a racist joke whether you can make a racist joke and there's nothing behind it, there's no intent, there's no intent of causing violence behind it. Hmm. You know, they've, they've, the plaintiff's lawyers have read out some of the, some truly stomach-churning statements or uh, conversations, internal sort of chats from their Discord servers or that are just violently racist. But, you know, the defendants say this is just, you know, it's just chat, like it's just... It's just a joke and they can hold you know they'll say this is america we can hold whatever views we want um just because i'm a racist or just because i'm a white nationalist you know it doesn't mean that you know i'm not allowed to say those things but you know it wasn't just empty hollow words or just jokes it was actually specific organizing and rallying each other up ahead of the unite the right rally
0: So what's the goal here? Like, is it possible to hold a movement accountable like this in this type of trial?
1: Yeah, so we did chat with Amy Spitalnik, who is the head of the organization Integrity First for America, about the lawsuit's goals. It have very real financial, operational, legal impacts
0: on the ability of these groups and their leaders to operate, to go about their business, to
1: spread their violence. We've seen it effectively bankrupt, disrupt, dismantle groups throughout history. But here's the thing, these guys and their organizations who are on trial are not that relevant anymore. More on that after the break.
0: I believe, as you can see, we are stepping off the internet in a big way. Uh, For instance, last night at the Torch Walk, there were hundreds and hundreds of us. People realize they're not atomized individuals. They're part of a larger whole because we have been spreading our memes. We have been organizing on the internet. And so now they're coming out. And at some point, we will have enough power that we will clear them from the streets forever. That which is degenerate in white countries will be removed. Vice News covered the rally in 2017 thoroughly, and our former colleague, Gali Reeves, and the rest of the team caught this movement in a sort of coming out moment, right? I think for most people, other than, you know, Vice News extremism correspondents, this was a real, like, what the fuck is happening moment. Like, these people burst out into our national consciousness all of a sudden. But now we know this movement has grown and changed significantly in the last four years, Right.
1: Right, exactly. And I think that also white supremacy in America, it didn't start with Charlottesville and didn't end with Charlottesville. Definitely it was the sort of culmination of again what was described as the alt-right at the time. These sort of suit and tie white nationalists like Richard Spencer, groups like Identity Europa had been basically recruiting, you know, young white men and putting a new face on a movement that I think to most people, when they thought about the white supremacist movement in America, they thought of sort of aging guys with their Confederate flags. And so this was a pretty shocking moment to realize that the movement had been successful in recruiting younger men. Right. I think in the years since, the movement has adapted to what they saw as the mistakes in Charlottesville. For example, when they hold events, you know, in Charlottesville, everyone had their faces completely uncovered. Mm-hmm. And then that opened them up to liability, to getting doxxed. You know, a lot of people who were photographed or filmed, you know, there was this this sort of um massive online effort by activists to to uncover their identity. There was also people losing their jobs, falling out with their families. And so, you know, now people make sure that they cover their faces. Um, there's also hmm. encouraged of sort of decentralized movements rather than having actual figureheads, because people understand that if you put yourself at the forefront of a movement, that opens you up to liability for anything that, you know, your members might um, get into. And so you have now sort of figures like um, Robert Rundo as one example. He's a well-known neo-Nazi, and he's encouraging these sort of decentralized groups that are popping up but he is not sort of claiming to be in control of any of them. I think another thing to point out is that QAnon didn't exist at the time of Unite the Right. So that's been... Oh, man. (laughs) A time before QAnon. Exactly. So there's been that. And then I think the other thing which is key is the fact that some of the core ideas that were present or the core conspiracy theories that were present in Charlottesville have seeped into the mainstream, which has also made things harder because the the line between what's extreme and what's mainstream has gotten increasingly blurry. So we saw this surge in anti-government conspiracy theories and militias in the last two years. Um, and then you have, I think, the probably the most troubling example of drawing a line between Charlottesville and where we are now. Back in 2017, you had neo-Nazis and white nationalists chanting, you will not replace us. Um, or Jews Will Not Replace Us, that was a direct reference to an essay by a French white nationalist called The Great Replacement, which basically gave a language to all of this simmering xenophobia towards refugees in Europe. And this conspiracy theory that white people were being displaced um, has since kind of trickled into the mainstream to the point that quite recently... Uh, Tucker Carlson name-checked it on Fox News. Um, And so it has definitely gained legitimacy in a way that I think, and normalization in a way that is quite frightening.
0: All right, so these people are less easily identified. They don't have a target on their backs in the same way that they used to. They are also... I mean, their views are more mainstream now, which also makes it difficult to qualify what is, what is extreme and what isn't. Um, they've, they've definitely, like, learned
1: from what happened in 2017. Like, that's what you're telling me yes and some of the groups as well when they rebranded like for example patriot front which formed in the aftermath of charlottesville as a spin off for vanguard america and when they mobilize they do so sort of flash mob style so to, so that you know people are caught off guard they have their faces completely covered mm-hmm. making it very difficult to identify them and you know instead of talking about white nationalism they sort of signify it through americana you know, or they, they try to mm, use a patriotic mm-hmm. aesthetic to communicate the idea their own ideas. Right. They're not white nationalists.
0: They're just patriots. Exactly.
1: And so, yeah, you actually see this evolution or this shift away from blatantly racist language to sort of euphemisms um, in the trial. For example, Matthew Parrott, who is a co-founder of the Traditionalist Worker Party, was saying that racial slurs are vulgar and he was talking about who he doesn't really like Nazi salutes or Nazi iconography because he thinks they're quote LARPy. Um Thomas Rousseau, who is the head of Patriot Front. He was asked to read one of his own posts from 2017 containing racist and anti-Semitic slurs. And he asked the lawyer if he could avoid saying the slurs directly because he would likes to do his best to, quote, exclude these vulgarities from my language. OK, but some of this
0: is just good legal strategy, right? Because they have already adapted to
1: reduce their personal liability. Right. I mean, I think that the just groups have gotten better and better at disguising them in ways that make them, these ideas, more appealing to a sort of broader audience. I think as well that the national uncertainty from the pandemic basically provided a window for the far right to reach into a much broader swath of the public and basically radicalise them to anti-government conspiracy theories.
0: What accountability is even possible with this trial? Is this,
1: is this a flawed exercise? One thing that this trial has provided is a glimpse into how these groups organize. Through Discovery, the lawyers collected 5.3 terabytes of digital evidence, so Discord chats, text messages, videos, everything you can imagine. And it's offered a glimpse into how they talk when they think that nobody is looking versus how they present themselves in public and also how much thought goes into cultivating um, their appearance so if, like for example one of the one one neo-nazi leader was instructs members to always smile at public rallies because smiling makes it seem like they're winning that was a sort of one <laughs> example of how much thought goes into absolutely every, Every way they behave, the signs they carry, the things they chant, how, what they wear. Everything is so carefully and meticulously planned. And all of this evidence is really giving me a much deeper understanding of how these groups think and operate. And having that information is important to build resilience against these movements in the future and their ability to organize.
0: Tess, thank you so much for your reporting on this. This has been
1: really, really helpful. Thank you for having me. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more
0: Vice News Reports is produced by Jesse Alejandro Cuttrell, Sophie Casis, Jen Kinney, Janice Yamoka, Julia Nutter, and Sarah Cavedo. Our senior producers are Ashley Cleek and Adiza Egan. Our associate producers are Steph Brown, Sam Egan, and Adriana Rodriguez. Sound design and music composition by Steve Bone, Pran Bandy, Natasha Jacobs, and Kyle Murdoch. Our executive producer and VP of Vice Audio is Kate Osborne. Janet Lee is Senior Production Manager for Vice Audio. Fact-checking by Nicole Pasulka. Our theme music is by Steve Bohn. I'm Arielle zwem I know podcast hosts do this all the time, but please take the time to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. It really does help other people find the show. Vice News Reports drops every Thursday, so be sure to check back in next week.